we are looking at the parables that Jesus uh, told. We're looking at some of those. And uh, we started last week by looking at the parable of the sower, and we talked about the why. Why would Jesus even do this? It looked like things were going well for him, and all of a sudden he flips the script, and he starts purposefully confusing people. Why would he do this? And we looked at the parable of the sower to answer the question why he would do this. Because Jesus is not being received as he should be received. He is the king of the Jews. He is God in the flesh. He is the son of God, the Messiah. And people are not receiving him like this. And so he's going to begin to weed out the chaff that is in the crowd. And he's going to begin to purposefully conceal the truth from those in the crowd that will not exercise belief and faith in who he is. And he will reveal the truth to those who would do that. And the parable of the sower gave us insight into why he did that. And uh, one of the things that I talked about last week that I want to be a focus as we move through some of these parables is that we keep the parables in the context in which they originated. The historical perspectives and the cultural uh, perspectives that surround the parables are very important. And when we don't take uh, time to really look at those, we do it in injustice. Because when we don't look at the historical and the cultural perspectives that were involved in the parables, what we will do is we will submit, we will substitute our own into there. We'll, su- we'll substitute our own culture, our own perspectives, our own time period, our own upbringings. And when we do that, we don't do justice to the parables. And so we need to sit back and we need to take a look at the parables as, as if we're in the back of the room just observing what's taken place. Who is Jesus talking to and why? What does this mean to the listener of that day and that time? And surely anybody can pick up the Bible and they can read it and they can be blessed at a very basic level. They can be blessed. Just like anyone can listen to a Bach cantata and be moved by the music. Uh, but to the trained musical ear, when you listen to Bach or to Beethoven, you have a, a better sense of the nuances within the music. The historicity of where that peace came from and who wrote it and you understand musical theory you with a trained ear have are moved on a deeper level and that's what we want from the scriptures isn't it we want to be moved on a deeper level and so we have to do the work that's involved sometimes with digging into some of these things and with that in mind we're going to look at one of the most well-known parables the parable of the good samaritan this is in luke chapter 10 Luke chapter 10, this is, like I said, so well known, in fact, that it's become an idiom in our culture today even, that we would say that someone who does a good deed for someone else is known as a good Samaritan, something that we use even today. It's one of the most well-known parables that Jesus taught, and I think at the very basic level, if you ask someone, what is this parable about, someone might say, well, at the most basic level, it's about helping others that are in need. And and yes, that, that may be true, and it is true. Uh, But I think there's so much more to it that we can gain. And if we do the look, especially at the cultural and historical perspectives that were involved. So we're going to look at this parable. It's found in Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 25 through 37. As it starts to rain, that's awesome. Thank you, Lord, for that. It says this in verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, That is Jesus. He's putting Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So the first character that we come to in the the story is this lawyer. 
Now, the lawyer or the scribe, those two terms were used uh, interchangeably. You may have heard scribe in other locations. Uh, These people were experts in the law, specifically in the Mosaic law and how you would interpret the law. They were highly regarded and respected among the people in their culture. Uh, People would go and seek the advice of a lawyer or a scribe whenever they were dealing with a particular issue that they were having trouble with in life. They would try to, to find a lawyer or a scribe and say, what does the law say about this particular issue? They were highly regarded, highly respected. So a lawyer is the first character we come in contact with. And it says that the lawyer stood up to test him. Now, in Middle Eastern traditional culture, when there was a a lesson going on, a teacher or a master or a rabbi is teaching, they would sit, all of them, in a circle usually. Sometimes the the, the teacher would be elevated some, but he was seated as well. Uh, And whenever, this is different from our culture today, like most we would know is the class sits and the teacher stands, right? I mean, even now that's kind of what's happening. Good class. <laughs> but that's, that's the, not the culture that they were in. In their culture, everyone would sit, and whenever uh, a student needed to ask a question, or maybe they wanted to recite something, they would stand, and it's, this was a show of respect for the teacher. So they would stand out of respect. So on the onset, it looks like, it looks like this, this lawyer, it says he stood up, to ask a question, so it looks like he's maybe showing respect, but we know that that's not true. Why? Because it says that he stood up to put him to the test. He says he stood up to put Jesus to the test. And this is actually not respectful. This would be disrespectful then. To stand up in front of a teacher for the purpose of testing him. So right off the bat, the cultural ramifications would be that this is an awkward situation. That this lawyer, this scribe who is known for his interpretation of the law and what he knows about specifically the Mosaic law stands up to test Jesus Christ. And we have to remember what's happening here. The crowd around Jesus is beginning to grow. They're flocking to him. And this threatens the religious leaders of this day. And so they are trying to find accusation against Christ. They're trying to find a way that they can test him and find accusation against him so they can get their crowd back. They don't want their crowd going to some other guy. So this lawyer, he stands up disrespectfully to test Jesus Christ. And he asks this this question. This is actually a really important question. He says this, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now this is the question, is it not? I mean, this is the most important question anyone could ever ask. What do I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, certainly depending on your level of belief, if there is a God, and this God says, I will offer you mercy and forgiveness of your sins, I will give you salvation and hope and eternity, the natural question would be, how do I obtain that? And that's what this Jewish lawyer asks Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life. And as we go through this parable, which we haven't even got to yet, I want us to keep in mind that this is how this whole thing started. With this question, how do I obtain eternal life? Now Jesus, of course, being God, understands what the lawyer is trying to do. He sees the heart of man. He knows what's happening. He knows that this lawyer is going to try to test him or trick him into something, probably because he's so familiar with the old law that he's going to try to trip Jesus up in that somehow. 
But Jesus sees right through this man's heart and he, he doesn't go after a direct response. He doesn't just answer the question. Um, he's going to instead invoke the lawyer's reaction to a related question and see how he responds to that. He's going to answer the question with a question. And he says in verse 26, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? I love that so much. Uh, I think we do this. I think um, we like to do this sometimes. I I was, uh, all of last week, uh, my wife was out of town and I had all the girls to myself. It was great. Um, And, you know, as I was preparing for this message, I Kind of as I was dealing with my children, I, I kind of tried to play a little Jesus tactic on them sometimes. And so, like, if my daughter comes to me and she says, Daddy, can I have a soda? And I say, no, you cannot. Well, her question is going to be, why not? And usually what we would say is, because I said so. <laughs> and that should be good enough. We, of course, know that's never good enough for them. Uh, and so we want to just say, oh, that's because, because I said so. That's it. It's over. But we, we exchange the Jesus tactic here, and my daughter comes to me, and she says, well, what a, can I have a soda? And I say, no, you cannot. And she says, well, why? And I say, well, why do you think I don't want you to have a soda? Oh, you see what I've done. Now she needs to think about that, and if she's being rational, which is a whole nother <laughs> issue, she might go, well, I guess maybe because it's 8.30 at night, and there's a school night, and I have school in the morning, and I guess because soda has a bunch of caffeine and sugar in it, you don't want me to get all hyped up before bed so that I can sleep well, so I have a good day tomorrow, so I learn, and so I grow, and whatever. That's right, honey. Go and do likewise. Right? That's a good tactic that we would have. And Jesus does that to this man. He doesn't answer his question directly. He could have. He very well could have said, this is how it is, because I said so. I'm Jesus Christ. But he doesn't. He says, well, what do you say? You're, an ex- you're apparently an expert in the law. How does it read to you? Oh, expert in the law. And the lawyer answers in verse 27. And he's, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, of course, this is how the lawyer is going to answer. This was not shocking to anyone. This is how any good Jew or religious leader of that day would have answered. Why? Because this is part of the Shema. This is part of something that the the traditional Jew would recite every single day, twice a day. It comes from two verses, Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And they recited it every single day, twice a day. And the, the the, the idea is basically that everything, everything in the Old Testament, and yes, everything even in the New Testament, you squeeze this down, you compact it down, and you can compact it down to two things, love God and love others. Let me give you some examples of that. Paul says this in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Listen to this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. What's he saying there? The Ten commandments, right? Then he goes on to say, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Jesus himself, when asked this question in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, 
Teacher, what, was the, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus says this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says this then in verse 40. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. This whole thing can be boiled down to two things. Love God, love others. And of course, this is what the lawyer responds with. He has no choice. He's now in the trap. He, he must say this. You see, perfect love precludes rules. If you love God perfectly and you love others perfectly, you don't need any laws or commandments. That's why it's so important that we understand this. More on this later. Verse 28, back to our story. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, that is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Trying to justify himself, Jesus has spoiled the whole thing by asking this question. He said, you're right. You've answered right. Go and do that. Well, wait a minute. Now he's got to save his face in front of the crowd. He's got to save his pride in his own heart. And attempting to justify himself, he says, well, Jesus, give me some definitions then. Who is my neighbor? Now, notice he mentions nothing about the whole loving God part. He just jumps over that completely. As if to say, oh, loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, check, I got that. But what I need, Jesus, is I need some definitions. Because if I have some definitions on who is my neighbor and who is not my neighbor, I can put these people in this category. I can begin to love them and focus on them. And I can begin to earn. I'll be able to earn my way to eternal life. I need some definitions here. Who is my neighbor? And notice that the question, who is my neighbor, is basically, who is it that qualifies for my love? What must a person do that I should love them? You see, this is the wrong question. And Jesus is about to expose that this is the wrong question. What is the, the correct question? What, not what must someone do that I might love them, but what must I do to better love people? And Jesus is going to show him just how broken his whole religious system is. And he's going to do that by using a parable. So he starts, he launches into it. In verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now this was a familiar route. Uh, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho uh, is about 17 miles, and in it, it drops about 4,000 feet in elevation. It's dangerous, it's treacherous, it's windy, it's curvy, it's rocky and healy. There's crevices, there's cliffs that are dangerous. It was known that oftentimes people would be robbed and even murdered on this, this route. This is a familiar setting to the Jew that Jesus starts with. Probably all of them have traveled this before. 
And it's here on this route, which was known as the Bloody Pass, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, that he sets out that this man is, is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's robbed, he's beaten to within an inch of his life. And not only that, he's stripped completely of all of his clothes, he's laid dead on the side of the road to die. And this seems like a helpless situation, but then Jesus inserts a gleam of hope in verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. Oh, a priest. This has got to be some good news for the man here. The priests were the religious elite in Judaism. These were the, 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 the descendants of Aaron that got to partake in the Jewish sacrificial system and serve the temple. By making sacrifices for the people. They would even intercede for the people. They were men of virtue. They were looked highly upon. These were, these were men that were supposed to be known for their righteousness. And here we have a man in great need. And Jesus says, and by chance there happens to be a priest. Oh, this has got to be good news. But it's short-lived, isn't it? Because it says a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He passed by on the other side. Now, Jesus does not give us the exact motivation as to why the priest does that. He doesn't give us the excuse of the priest. He doesn't give us the reason why. But we know from the cultural, we know from the, the law, what, some things that we can assume. We have to note that Jesus said that, that, that they were going from Jerusalem to Jericho, not the other way around. Now, it's important that Jesus said that, I think, for a reason. Because if they were going from Jerusalem to Jericho and the priest was going from where they would usually live, which was around the cities around Jericho, they would go up to the temple service for several weeks to do their service and they would come back home. But this man is not going from home to his duty. He's going from his duty to his home. Now that's important. Why? Because we know from the law that if a priest encounters a dead body, they would become ceremonially unclean. They would have to then go through a purification process before they could enter into the temple service again. But this man is not going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jericho. At least that's how Jesus sets it up. So is there really an excuse for this priest? There are other laws the priest probably had to think of as he's dealing with this. Uh, he, the man is stripped of his clothes. In that day, clothing identified you. He didn't know who this man was or where he was from. He didn't know if he was alive or dead already. He didn't even stop to check. He just passed by. There must have been many laws that went through his head as he approached this man. But there are other laws that said if a priest encountered someone in need that he helped them. So what's that about? Whatever the reason, we have to understand that what happens here is the man that was supposed to, that should have and that could have helped this man, does not help him. His religious system trumped helping the innocent man. His supposed laws and ceremonies and rituals said, oh, I can't do this for whatever reason, and I'll just leave this man to die. And this is a priest that does that. Verse 31, 
I'm sorry, not 31. Uh, 32, next. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So now we're given another man, a Levite. Not a descendant of Aaron. These these were uh, assistants to the priests. They would help them. They couldn't partake necessarily in in the sacrificial system, but they could help and they could aid. They sometimes would police the temple, make sure everything is running correctly, is, is doing what it needs to do. But they were still considered in their time and in their day religious elite. There was the priest and then there was the Levite. Respected and known among the people. And again, we're not given the motivation as to why exactly this Levite does not stop and help the man. A lot of people want to speculate a lot of different things. Jesus doesn't tell us. People want to say, well, it could have been because uh, if the priest didn't stop, the Levite for sure shouldn't because it would be outstaging the priest. And he can't do that. Whatever the reason, what we need to understand is that these are two men that should have helped and did not. And because of their religious system, that they had constructed. Their system did not allow them to deal with an innocent man that is hurting and that is in great need. So we have this progression that's happening here and in Jewish culture, this was common. You have a priest, he comes and does not help. He's at the top. You have a Levite, he comes and does not help. He's next in line. They would know in their culture that the third person that's named is going to be the hero. So what are they thinking in that moment is going to be named? Because Jesus is about to drop this on them. Well, they're probably thinking, I'm guessing the lawyer is thinking what? Ah, then a lawyer came. A scribe happened to be walking by and becomes the hero. Maybe the crowd that's around him, the Jews that were there, were maybe thinking, oh, a, a, a Jewish layman comes by and becomes the hero. This would be great news. But then the twist in verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The hero of the story is not a Jewish scribe, a priest, or a Levite. It's not even a Jewish layman. The hero of the story is an outcast, hated Samaritan. This is the enemy. The racial issues and the the bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews was well known. Basically, through all the captivity and the bondage that they had to go through, the two tribes, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom are split. There's a group of Jews that remain in Samaria. There's an intermarriage that begins to happen. And after their exiles, the Jews come back and they despise those Samaritans for their intermarriage. They call them half-breeds. Those Samaritans, they want to they help restore and rebuild the temple. And the Jews say, absolutely not. We have nothing to do with you. Now they worship the same God, so the Samaritans think, well, we've got to have a temple. So they build their own temple in Samaria on Mount Gerizim. And this just infuriates the Jews because this is not true worship. This is not where true worship happens. In fact, they go and destroy that temple. The blood between the Jews and the Samaritans was bad. And here Jesus makes a Samaritan the enemy, the hero of the story. And look at the lengths 
at which the Samaritan goes to care for this man. This is important. Verse 34, he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. I mean, the lengths at which he goes to care for this man that he does not even know is really quite remarkable, isn't it? I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's almost unbelievable. It's over the top. It's too much. It says he went to him. I mean, even the fact that he stopped to see what was going on exposes him to the same fate as that man. Because those robbers very likely could have been hiding in the shadows themselves, waiting for another victim to come. And just the fact that he stops, he gives up his own safety to see what's going on with this man. It says, he bound his wounds, pouring oil and wine. This is another cultural thing. Oftentimes, they would travel with their own oil and with their own wine. Oil to cook with, wine to drink, and for other reasons as well. So here, he's giving up his own provisions, his own possessions. He's lavishly pouring it on his wounds. He's giving up his own possessions. He's giving up his own safety. It says he set him on his own animal, whether this is a donkey or a mule or something. He's, he's giving up now his own comfort. He's going to walk the rest of the way so that this man can ride comfortably on his own animal. It says he brought him to an inn and took care of him. So he brings him to Jericho, to an inn. And let's remember something. As he enters Jericho, he is a Samaritan. He is not welcome in Jericho. He's exposing himself to threat, to even more danger. And he takes him, nonetheless, to an inn. And there he continues continues to minister to this man, to care for him. How long? All through the night. It says the next day. All through the night, this man cares for him. He rebandages his wounds. He, he makes sure that he has plenty to drink, that he hydrates himself, that he has something to eat, that he can rest. All through the night, he cares for him. And the next day, he takes out two denarii and he gives it to the innkeeper and says, keep taking care of this man. I, I have another appointment I must get to, but would you please continue to care for him? Give him whatever he needs. If there's more that he needs, would you, I'll, I'll repay whatever is necessary. To see that this man get well. Two denarii would have basically allowed for that man to stay at that place for weeks, if need be, with this amount of money. I mean, this is, this is extravagant, over-the-top love and compassion that this enemy displays on someone he does not even know. And this is a wonderful picture of love. And I, I wonder, who do we love like this? I mean, let's just take it more personal just for a minute. Who would we love in this way? And I think some of us might immediately think of a spouse or a child or a parent. And certainly we, we love to that regard. But I think if we're, if we're being honest, who do we really love to this level We love ourselves this way. I mean, think about that. 
If you have a need, you're going to fulfill the need that you have. If you're hungry, you're going to eat. If you're thirsty, you're going to do whatever it takes to get something to drink. If you're injured, you're going to find the best care for yourself that you can possibly find. Nobody takes care of you like you do. You know what you need, you know what you desire, and you are going to care for yourself, your own body, like nobody else can. Remember, the, the, the text says, love your neighbor as what? Yourself. yourself. This is how we would love ourselves. And it's this type of love, the self-love that we would give to ourselves that Jesus says that we are called to extend to others. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus gives this elaborate, over-the-top example of self-love from the Samaritan. And then he asks this question back to the man in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Well, the, <laughs> the answer is obvious. It's obvious. And the, the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. Notice that he did not say the Samaritan. His hatred is so deep for the Samaritan, he won't even utter that as the victory. He'll just say, the one who showed mercy. But he does get one thing right. He says, the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus says this in response to the lawyer's response. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, I think that when we come to this part of the text where Jesus responds, we kind of quickly brush that over because we want to focus more on the story that we just heard. Rightly so. It's an incredible story. But I think that sometimes, I think that we need to sit under the weight of what Jesus says at the end of that. You go and do likewise. Think about that for a minute. It begins with this question of how do I obtain, how do I inherit, how do I gain eternal life? Answer, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you love other people like you would love your own body, like you love yourself. Do this and you will live. Well, who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus is showing him that his broken system cannot answer that correctly, that the better response is who or, or how do I love more correctly? And he gives him this parable. Well, look at how the Samaritan loved this man. That's the level at which you should love your neighbor. That their broken system would not allow for. Now, you want to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord, love God, and love others perfectly. And you'll inherit eternal life. Now, is Jesus here hinting that somehow we can earn this? That we, if we just try hard enough, that we can love well enough, that we can earn salvation? No, of course not. Think about it. You love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. You love the Lord your God perfectly. You love him with every faculty of your being. And you love other people. You love them the way the Samaritan loved this man. Like he loved him to, like it was his own body. Meet every need. You love God and you love others and you do that perfectly. Oh, and you do that 
constantly. You do that consistently. You do that without failure. You do that without a breach. You do this always. And you'll have eternal life. Basically, Jesus is telling this man, you cannot do this. You cannot love this way. God's standard of love and righteousness and holiness is something we will never be able to reach. And what should have been the lawyer's response to any, of Jesus, any moment in Jesus' story or before even should have been to fall on his knees and to realize, oh Lord, have mercy because I don't love like this. I have not loved like this. I do not love like this. I will not love like this in the future. And certainly we try to love. This doesn't mean that because we can't obtain it, we don't strive for it. God still wants to seek out love for him and love for others. But we cannot reach this holy standard of love that God has. And we need mercy in that. And we need to see that a better response from the lawyer would have been to fall on his face and just beg for mercy. But instead he tries to justify himself. And I know that... um, I don't see the parable of the Good Samaritan necessarily as a lesson on doing nice things for other people, although we should do that. Because our works should reflect our love. But instead, I, I see the need of mercy um, and a Savior that could do what I cannot do, that could love in a way that I cannot love. And I know that this story isn't about Jesus Christ, but I'm sorry, I can't help but think about Christ when I read this story. I can't help but think about his love for us. How Jesus would be to us the good Samaritan and would meet every physical and spiritual need that we have. In spite of a broken religious system, he would meet our needs. In spite of our hostility and being enemies of God, he would at the right time die for us. The lengths at which he would go to meet our every spiritual need, to care for us like a father, to save us from death, and that at the cross, we would see the ultimate good Samaritan in Jesus Christ and what what he's done for us. And that we need mercy. And this lawyer and this priest and this Levite and their system didn't allow for them to have compassion on someone that was in need. And Jesus is trying to show them, your system is broken. If all of this comes down to love God and love others, then you've completely missed it. Let me give you an example. And that's where we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is how you are to love someone. And in that, we should feel the weight that we don't do that. But Jesus does. He loves us with that perfect love. And so that should then spur us on to love God even more. It should spur us on to love others and pursue the type of Samaritan love that we need to have for our neighbors. And we should be thankful for a God who loves us the same way this Samaritan loved an enemy enemy that was broken and beaten on the side of the road. I think this is a picture of God just thinking about us, saying, I'm going to go to every length 
and whatever it takes to love you and to show you the depths of my love for you. And we need to ask God for his mercy and his forgiveness as we don't love well. We don't often ask that question of in this moment, in this scenario, what does love require of me? And that's what, at least I think, for me, this parable is about. So Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We can't but help to thank you because you told this story knowing you were going to go to the cross. And we would later see that your love for us is even more over the top, more extravagant than the Samaritan's love for this man. And so we thank you for your love. We ask for your mercy, your forgiveness, and how we often deal with you and with other people. Forgive us for our lack of love and help us to see a Savior that loves us so well and allow that to motivate us, God, to love others and to love you all the more. And to not let what we think we know about you or about scripture ever hinder the fact that we are called to show compassion and love for other people. We don't want to fall into a broken system as well. And so help us to remember that all of scripture, all of it can be tied down to this idea that if we would just love God and love others, everything would take care of itself. So help us in that pursuit and thank you for your love. And thank you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you again. You're dismissed.